You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, February 16th, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hello and happy Narconon Day to everyone. Oh, boy. Good old Narconon. You're going to start the show on that note, are you? Well, it's not my fault it was founded on this day in 1966 by our dear friend L. Ron Hubbard. We should be clear that it's this is Narconon, not Narconon, which is a different... <laughs> Narconon is supposedly a good resource for people who are on drugs who want to get off drugs. Narconon is a Scientology front group for getting more cult members. Fact. Right. Yes. And, but but what what's their what is the front? What are they pretending to be? Well, they're pretending to be Narconon. <laughs> yeah, Narconon. <laughs> right. They it's 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 quite clever actually. They've just changed one syllable in the middle of the word and continued to act as though that they are simply helping drug drug addicts get over their addiction. Um, but midway through the process, the <laughs> unknowing uh, drug addicts are suddenly. In Scientology. <laughs> but which, midway through, I mean, I think they start kind of early in the process. Don't you agree? Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe we could hear from someone who has been through the process before, because I haven't. But um, it's my understanding that in a lot of these front groups, I mean, they're very good at hiding the fact that Scientology is behind them. And Scientology has thousands of these sorts of groups, like... Um, the Citizens Campaign for Human Rights or whatever, their anti-psychology front group, things like that. And in, in the case of Narconon, it's particularly insidious because it targets people who are at the lowest point of their lives. They're, you know, they're strung out. They're looking for any help. Usually they're, um, you know, they don't have a support network. They don't have friends and family to lean upon. And so that's that makes them perfect for being indoctrinated into a cult. And so Scientology um, basically sort of nurses them back to health, probably does actually get them to a certain off point. of drugs. Yeah. But but yeah, then at the end of it, they're addicted to Scientology and then, you know, right. which costs... We're talking about Xenu. <laughs> right, which yeah. costs a lot more per year than most crack addictions. According to, <laughs> so, according to what I read, they get people off the drugs and then they give them massive overdoses of vitamins and very long sauna sessions, which are designed to run out the drugs and radiation from the body. Yeah, there's a lot of pseudoscience. I mean, obviously, because it's Scientology, of course. What do you expect? Yeah, I just want to point out that it's not it's not necessarily completely ineffective because they are offering these people a support network, which can help people get over addictions it's just that it's a scary cult support network <laughs> i read a quote right. by l ron hubbard in regards to uh narconon narconon <laughs> here it is you may have noticed that society is rapidly going downhill boy that's the first time i've heard that one inflation <laughs> lack of fuel and even war cast deep shadows over the world and the most serious part of this is that drugs, both medical and street drugs, have disabled the majority of those who could have handled it, including the political leaders, and have even paralyzed the coming generation. Yeah, so another angle to this is that uh, you know Scientology is against medical drugs as well, not just drugs of abuse or recreational drugs. They sort of they try to try to paint all all drugs with the same brush. So could you show up there and say, "I got, I got to get off my heart medication"? 
<laughs> I'm addicted to my heart meds. I don't know though. They, I, I think that they, um, they, they focus on drugs that affect the mind. So any psychological drugs, yeah. things like that. That's what they're mostly against. But that would be fu- that would be funny to send somebody in there who's on Prozac and see how they would approach that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm way ahead yeah, of you they, guys. They suck them in. <laughs> I, well, I actually called Narconon today. What? I, I did because they said counselors available, and I after reading some stuff, the background about this, you know, basically all the counselors are people that went through the program with no credentials whatsoever. Of kind of like L. Ron Hubbard himself. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> hey, he had credentials. He was a science fiction writer, <laughs> so he knew fantasy. He could make shit up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, my summary of my two minutes on the phone with with Narconon today was that it was one of the most absurd com- absurd conversations I've had in a long time. You know, they they mine you for data. They want to know what drug you're on immediately. They want to know where you live. You know, they, and they even say on the website, they even say on the website that they're going to ask you a few questions just to get to know your case well, and it's totally confidential and all that. But I mean, you couldn't help but hear the pitch and everything the person was saying. There was no true concern at all. It just sounded to me like they were data gathering. And you know, I got to the point where he asked me for my email like three times, and I got off the phone. And coincidentally, um, my friend and fellow skeptic Surly Amy. She's been on the Scientologist list for a long time. And just today, she sent me a scan of their newspaper that they send every month or so. And it's called The Auditor. And the front page story is called Training in Life. And this is the subhead. A trained Scientologist is one who uses Scientology to further the business of livingness. (laughs) The business of livingness. (laughs) Everyone, like, yes. that's very good. It I'm flows. really impressed. It flows so Embiggening lives everywhere. <laughs> it's a perfectly cromulent word. <laughs> oh boy. Well, let's move on, Bob. You're going to tell us if there are jovian planets in our outer solar system. Jovial planets? <laughs> just happy planets? Yeah, that's jovial. But uh, yeah, this was kind of a surprise uh, for me. A binary pair of scientists. Caused a bit of a stir this week after making a bold claim about a potential ninth planet in our solar system. Now, this wasn't a quest to restore Pluto back to planetary status. This is uh, potentially about a planet at the other end of the size spectrum. Uh, these scientists believe they will soon find a planet four times the mass of Jupiter, four times the mass, and 15,000 times Farther from the sun than Earth, way past even our little dwarf planet buddy Pluto. So 15,000 AU. Right, which is only about 30 times uh, farther out. So yeah, um, yeah, an AU is, is an astronomical unit, which is 93 million miles. It's a distance between the Earth and the sun. So yeah, this, this would be way, way out there. But four times the mass of Jupiter just, just seems so incredible. Now, these two astronomers, Dan Whitmire and John Matisse, who are professors at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, they recently announced that this mega planet is is um, is probably out there in their opinion, about one you know one point four trillion miles away. Uh, they've even christened it Tyche after a Greek goddess. Uh, of course, I always think of Tycho Brahe whenever I read that word. So why so why do they even believe this? Right? I mean, have they actually spotted this thing? You would think, oh yeah, maybe they just kind of saw it in, in a telescope or something. But no, they haven't seen it yet. But they have inferred this planet's existence because of uh, unusual Oort cloud behavior. Now, the Oort cloud is roughly 
a spherical agglomeration of about, they're saying, three trillion chunks of ice. Now, this is in the gravitational outskirts of the solar system, tens of thousands of AUs from the sun. You know, there's trillions of these things out there, but there's really not a lot of mass. I mean, how much mass would you think, if you could take the entire cloud, guys, and condense it, how much mass do you think it would be? About 100. 100 what? <laughs> 100 pounds. 100 whatevers. 100 quat. Just about- 100 quat lutes. <laughs> oh my god 100 parsecs <laughs> <laughs> you've got these these trillions of chunks of ice now these cause these comets these long period comets that come into that come into our inner solar system so now that you now that you know what this cloud is Jay right that's kind yeah. of a foundation for what I'm going to say now so mm-hmm. M- Matisse recently said that there's evidence that some Oort cloud comets display orbital peculiarities we're saying that perhaps the pattern is indicative that there's a planet out there. So what these guys are saying is that they were exploring this anomaly, um, which is pretty much how a lot of great discoveries start in the first place. But they were looking at the paths of many of these long-period comets that come in from the Oort cloud down into the inner solar system. And they've been, you know, they, we've been studying these comets for hundreds of years. Is it really an anomaly? I, I just got the impression that they were just looking at the pattern of comets falling into the inner solar system from the Oort cloud and said, hey, maybe we can infer from this pattern that there's a massive object out there that is perturbing their orbits, but not necessarily that there was an anomaly, like something that we wouldn't expect or that could – you know what I mean? I know what you mean, but my sense was that that it was a little anomalous because the angle of inclination that a lot of these comets are taking, uh, the the Oort cloud theory – Whatever they have, this theory about the cloud uh, does not handle the the, uh, the trajectory uh, the trajectories of these comets. So so that's why it's a little bit anomalous. I don't know how much of an anomaly it is, but it sure my research pretty much okay. said that it, that it was. So if you hypothesize then that, that that there's a huge source of gravity out there in the cloud disturbing the comets nearby, then the the anomaly starts to kind of make sense to these scientists anyway. And uh, and it would be pretty incredible if they're correct. The bottom line, though, as far as I could tell, is that they're, they're basically just – it's just too premature to start popping corks. Uh, like especially some of these news outlets were really kind of uh, – really overselling this. He, our buddy Phil Plate put it well when he blogged. I read their papers and thought the data were interesting but unconvincing. The sample size was too small. A bigger study was done, but again, the effects weren't quite enough to rise to the level of breakthrough. I'm not saying the astronomers are wrong. The data were certainly provocative and potentially correct, just not firm enough. Uh, so that's pretty much a, a really good bottom line. Uh, and a lot of other astronomers are pretty much saying the same thing. So then what do you do? How do you, how do you resolve this? Go looking for it. Right. And luckily, it seems like it's already been looked for. Um, these, these two scientists believe that proof of the existence of Tyche has already been gathered by a, a NASA space telescope. The, uh, you guys heard of the WISE, mm-hmm. the Wide Field Infrared Survey explore yep. that's been mapping the sky for for a bit now and uh they're actually going in april they're going to start doling out little chunks of the, a lot of the data you know that it's gathered and Tyche might be in there so bottom line it's preliminary it's almost you know, a little more than a hypothesis and it, and it needs some confirmatory data and then we'll see what path it takes either we see more and more evidence for it or right. the evidence will be negative and then we'll see you know how far they're going to take the special pleading before they give up on it, basically. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. All right. All right, well, let's move on. Rebecca, you're going to tell us about the haunted theme park ride. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, maybe you've seen this already. Actually, if you've seen an episode of Scooby-Doo, you know how every episode of Scooby-Doo took place 
in a haunted amusement park, and then at the end it turned out to be the amusement park operator who was actually making up the ghosts. You're talking about the good Scooby-Doo, the original ones from the oh, 60s, and yeah. so forth, not these newfangled paranormal pro-Scooby-Doo. I don't acknowledge the most recent Scooby-Doo. Right. Those are obviously not canon. No, I'm referring to classic Scooby. Yes, anyway, it's all true. In the UK, um, in, in Surrey, uh, there's a an amusement par- park called Thorpe Park, and they have been working on a new ride, new attraction. It was to be built near an old monastery, and apparently workers saw a headless monk wandering around the work site. Did this monk lose his head on the ride? That's how he lost his head? Obviously. Obviously, this monk was having a little too much fun. Um, yeah, I mean, the ride wasn't even open yet, so it probably hadn't been checked for safety. And yeah, monk lost its head mm. and proceeded to haunt the uh, the ride, or at least um, the work site where the ride was being built. Um, they uh, The article is, is rather interesting because um, it's so full of BS. Yeah. Um, It was apparently uh, supposed to be built near an old footpath called Monk's Walk because it links the ruins of nearby Chertsey Abbey to Thorpe Church since the year 666 AD. Awesome. What are the chances? What are the chances that this... I'll tell you what the chances are, actually. Um... There were 100% that uh, the chances are 100% that a PR company would completely fabricate the year 666 in an attempt to play upon people's uh, fears of the mark of the beast, 666. In fact, um, Thorpe Church didn't really exist in 666 AD. There was a place of worship probably on or around that site. Um, however, the church wasn't built until at least um, six centuries later. Close, though. Close. Close. I mean, it's only 600 years, you know. The path known as Monk's Walk uh, was apparently not named so until the 20th century on certain survey maps and things like that. The uh, the abbey, however, does uh, date back to even earlier than the 7th century, and it uh, you know most likely does contain um burial grounds there there have been coffins that have been exhumed in that area in the past and so it's not a surprise that when they hired a forensic geophysicist to analyze the site he suggested that there may be burial grounds in the area. They knew that prior to hiring him. Uh-huh. Uh, but that was just sort of a PR move to confirm the fact that obviously this means ghosts. Ghosts because there were monks buried in this area. So was the abbey normal? <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Rebecca, Rebecca what, what I don't get is... Would they actually go through the expense of moving what seemed or sounded like a very expensive ride? Well, you you know, as far as we know, they haven't moved anything. Um, As far as we know, it's being built in the exact same place that they'd always meant to build it. All all of the articles, yeah, all of the articles about this story, um, all you have to do, here's a little hint. Um, When you write press releases, you always include a quote 
And the quote is just something that whoever's writing the press release makes up and then puts someone's name on, someone you know who's associated with the company that the press release is being written for. So when you see an article like amusement park to move ride because of Headless Monk, you know, obviously, that this is coming from the amusement park itself because they want to drum up publicity. So to find out, you know, exactly whether or not these articles are actually doing any research of their own, just find that one quote and just Google it. You'll see the exact same quote show up everywhere. That's because that's the quote in the press release. And sure enough, if you go to the website of Thorpe Park, you can click around and find a little media page where they put their press releases. And you can see that every article that's written about this is the press release, just rewritten, Yeah, but not much. It's pretty much just the press release. Um, so yeah, kudos to Thorpe Park for completely fabricating a story and getting it in, you know, all of the major newspapers and all over the internet. But wait, um, Rebecca, they got a paranormal expert. Yes. Oh, gosh, did I forget to mention the paranormal oh, yeah. expert? Jeez, yeah, I'm sorry. Not a an paranormal amateur, an expert. That's right. right. Jim Arnold, <laughs> who is associated with, it's something, I think, the Southwest London Bullshit Club or something. Yeah, which um, means he's an expert, so he's been playing at this for more than two days. Right. Right. Yeah. He claims to have been a <laughs> psychic medium for 10 years. He's been talking to the dead for, for about a decade. What have they been uh, No word yeah. if they've been talking back. You're right. But um, yeah, he's been doing that. He's their their lead psychic medium at the Southwest London whatever club. And you should go to their website because it's really a mark of high quality. Um, there's like a rainbow background and... It's it's just, you know, you just it really shows their professionalism. It's good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and he says, uh, Jim Arnold says that they, they picked up results immediately with orbs, ghostly images and photography and a Ouija reaction oh, results. Yeah. All science. Strongest around the site where they were... Pr- and, uh- Tools. Right. I wonder what, being, I wonder, being, I wonder what the says, controls looked like. He says what? being strongest around the site where they were proposing to build Storm Surge, which is the name of the ride. <laughs> and so, I mean, in his quote, it makes it quite obvious that they were never actually planning to uh, do anything at that site. It's not like, you know, the headlines make it sound like they were starting to build and then they had to move. Yeah. No, they had proposed to build the site on these grounds and then they just decided oh. now let's build it over here instead yeah because so they, they show committed in, the, in the article online they actually show like a worker standing on a really big steel structure that looks like a roller coaster so you're like oh they're moving like this really big expensive ride so right. basically no. after listening to your analysis and, and doing the brief reading I did today online I have determined that this entire thing is one gigantic publicity stunt <laughs> I think that that's a fair assessment. Um, I, think, I think it's an effective stunt too. I think. It's oh yeah. A, well, yeah. That's what I'm saying. It, you know, it, obviously they got in all the major <laughs> papers and all that. Um, but just to mention that the yeah the results that he says they got orbs and ghostly images and photography. Well, you can capture these quite easily. Pick up your camera and go into a dark room. Make sure you have the flash on and. Um, if you walk into any sort of not perfectly cleaned room and just <laughs> flash your camera around, then there's a very good chance that your flash is going to reflect off of little bits of dust in the air, and that causes 
ghostly orbs. It's quite easy to make mm. your own ghost orb pictures. Yeah. And Ouija, really? Like, if you don't know this already, <laughs> for those who are new to the show, the Ouija board is, like, they might as well have said they got some really great results with their um, Monopoly board. Like yeah. or, or we we brought girl talk to the site and yeah no, we, Rebecca their magic eight ghosts. ball told them where to look right the magic eight ball <laughs> Ouija boards are like manufactured by Milton Bradley or whoever <laughs> and it's it's just it's nothing more than the idiomotor effect um, people put their hands on the little planchette and it feels like it's being moved by some other force but it is in fact you that's moving it um, it's a very convincing thing but it's not ghosts it is a toy yeah (laughs) what what's ridiculous is they literally bring out a kid's toy to communicate with ghosts yeah Yeah. like we brought the big wheel and we rode around a bit and we found that the patterns it made look that is a scientific instrument being wielded by a professional didn't you read the article (laughs) right right he is an expert right yeah so anyway so so that that was that was that was a fun (laughs) story but the the headline can't compete with our next story about Heidi, the cross-eyed psychic possum. Oh, Heidi, the oh, I mean, get better this. than that. You this is the one from Germany, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, this how ridiculous! <laughs> they're in wow. Germany, in, at one of their zoos, there is a cross-eyed possum named Heidi. This cross-eyed possum named Heidi is going to be on on the Jimmy Kimmel show on February twenty seventh as part of the pre ceremony show for the Oscar Awards. The cross-eyed possum Heidi is going to make her picks as to who the winners of the major categories are going to be. Predictions. Excellent. Predictions. Psychic predictions. More Excellent. animal predictions. In the I, Jimmy Kimmel has – he's done psychic things on his show before, right? Isn't, I, I think I've seen things on his show before, but he's always ripped into the psychics. Like I'm pretty sure Jimmy Kimmel is a dyed-in-the-wool skeptic. Can anyone else confirm this? I, I don't – I might yeah. be misremembering. Yeah, I mean re- reading this report, I was like – I had the sense this was all tongue-in-cheek. Now, it may be that the zoo is – you know, again, I think this could just be a publicity stunt, you know. Every zoo now has to in Germany has to have their psychic animal. <laughs> like this is, they said this is following in the footsteps of Paul, the psychic octopus, who was predicting the outcome of World Cup matches. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a similar kind of thing. You, you wonder if a- anyone involved with promoting the psychic cross-eyed possum here, it, you know, takes this seriously, or if this is all just a you know promotional tongue in cheek. And actually, I'm I'm just remembering that Jimmy Kimmel. Um, he was, in fact, the one who had the psychic Gary Spivey on his show. Um, Gary Spivey's the crazy-looking one with the wig, and he had him filling out an NCAA bracket. But Jimmy Kimmel had already um, – the, the options he gave Gary were just completely made up. Like, they weren't real schools. And so <laughs> Gary Spivey very seriously went to work picking his winners. And, like, he picked the winners to be, like, you know, a pair of tennis shoes or something. Like, it was just completely ridiculous names that yeah. Jimmy Kimmel made up. Yeah. <laughs> so I have no doubt right. that this is completely tongue in So that wasn't real? N- no, <laughs> Jay. No. It wasn't real. <laughs> no, I, I, Steve, I think you're right. Publicity. Uh, certainly yeah. for the zoo. Although they didn't go that way with Newt. Remember the uh, the bear Newt mm-hmm. from a couple of years ago, which I think was from the, the Leipzig Zoo as well, which is where Heidi uh, is residing currently. Um, and there's lots of examples 
on the internet. You could find them anywhere about people who believe that animals are able to make predictions of, of all kinds. It really doesn't matter. It's just, you know, it's more, it's again, part of the same old story, the same old routine. In this case, it just happens to be animals, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's move on to who's that noisy. What we will do is play for you last week's Who's That Noisy? Is everyone ready? Oh, yeah. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Sounded like someone in pain to me when I first heard that. Adrian! Adrian! It sounded like a really bad imitation of a goat. It's actually quite a good (laughs) imitation of a goat because that's exactly what it was. It was a goat, yeah. But something, somebody going, bah, you know, like a a person doing it. But that was an actual goat. That was an actual goat, yeah. How come I I got through about half my life and I don't know that goats sound like that? Who got that first, Evan? Uh, From the message boards, a listener goes by the name of... Goatfucker. (laughs) A-L-H. Goat's best friend. A L one goat, oh, God. <laughs> and you're cast for life. A L H. How would you pronounce that? Probably. Ow. How would you pronounce that? <laughs> How about A L H? A L H from the message boards was the first one to guess correctly. Congratulations. All right. Here's this week's. Who's that noisy? So by by taking the human being out of the equation to a great extent and turning it over to a computer to make the decision. Uh, I guess you could you could also program the computer to, to violate the regulation, but we haven't gotten there yet. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Very interesting. People have to think a little bit harder about that one. So there it is. That this week's who's that noisy? Please post your message on our forum or send us an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. Good luck, everyone. Thanks, Evan. We do a quick email this week. This one comes from Alex Rule from Largo, Florida. And Alex writes, Hello, skeptics. I have been buying appliances for my new apartment and reading a lot of reviews online. I've been driving myself crazy worrying about negative product reviews, and suddenly it dawned on me the reviews are self-selected, not a true reflection of the product. Product reviews are pretty low on the list of things we need to get the word out about, but I thought it was pretty interesting that critical thinking really helps out. This is just one more reason kids should be taught these skills. I have been a long-time listener and wanted to thank you all for the great information you share every week. So this is an interesting topic, and and consumer protection is one of the missions of the skeptical movement, one of the applications for critical thinking. I think it's one of the ones that people could most easily relate to. Um, The product reviews are nothing new, but on, you know they certainly have become more prominent on the internet where you know a company will have a catalog and you can buy their products online and then there are reviews by people who have bought the products and that way it gives the consumer some feedback about you know how good is the the quality of the product, how useful is it you know what 's been the experience of people who have bought it but the question is how reliable is the information in these consumer produced Reviews. I, I think the obvious answer is that the full spectrum is there. There are websites that have a completely open-ended system all the way down to companies that deliberately look for people to put positive reviews of their product either on their website or on other people's websites. This is a really, really good example of buyer beware. There's, there's a few things to keep in mind 
when you're looking at uh, at reviews. One of them, first and foremost, is read a lot of the reviews, other reviews on a site that you're going to um, going to try to figure out. And meaning, take a look at other products on the site. Look at the reviews. Make sure that you're not just reading a website that has positive reviews, and make sure that you're not reading a website that only allows in like partial negative reviews. Uh, you, what you want to see there, optimally, what you should see is a bell curve, meaning that um, if we're doing the typical review, uh, one being the worst, five being the best, the bulk of the reviews should be in the two, three, four range, and the ones and fives should be the least common reviews that are on there. And typically, what you will see is that most review sites have, this is in my shopping experience, but a lot of review sites have mostly fives and then a few ones scattered in there. Isn't it more likely that there'll be ones and fives because people will only log back on to rate something if they feel strongly about it? Yeah, yeah. so that's that's another way to look at it, another interpretation that people have. You got to be careful with the ones and fives, even though you could gain a lot of really useful information from reading them. But you want to look towards more the the average reviewers, if there's any, and always try to to read through the emotion in a review and get to the content. Because when they start talking about like things that didn't work properly and things that were broken versus they got really frustrated and they're just pissed off and they're like just blowing steam, that you don't want to listen to the emotion. You want to listen to the hard facts that they put in there. And also, with any product, go to multiple sites, price compare, and also read reviews on multiple review sites. And you can kind of get an average feel for what the product is with enough sample. But yeah. you can't do it just by going to one site. So when I was looking into this... I two issues came up you know what one issue is are the reviews honest meaning are they are they actual customers who were reviewing the product or was the company faking the reviews are they loading the reviews by generating their own fives their own positive reviews so that's the really big concern. I've certainly been to some sites where I've read reviews and I'm like, Christ, that sounds that reads like it was written by somebody in the press, you know, group of this company. Yeah. No, nobody talks that way. That's that's press speak. You know, that's that's marketing speak that I'm reading. So sometimes if I get that vibe, I'm like, I just completely discount the reviews. So that's one issue, uh, and I think that companies should should you know, be made to, to specifically state that they're not doing that, you know, that it, cause then it's, it's fraud if they are, but l- let's assume that a site is honest, that there's no faked company reviews in there. Then the question is just how good are the reviews uh, that the feedback from consumers, given what Jay, well, everything Jay was talking about, there's obviously a lot of emotional factors in there. This is a self-selective group, so it's not scientific, right? It's people who are motivated to, to respond. And I've read conflicting things there from it, it being you know, biased to the, the wisdom of crowds uh, approach, which is interesting. And, and what some people have read written about consumer reviews is that, yeah, there's a lot of noise, but the noise tends to average out. The biases tend to average out. And you can sort of see the collective wisdom, the, the patterns that rise to the surface. It does represent some kind of collective wisdom that, that is useful. And the other feature that, that, I, that was mentioned was the how useful were these reviews. And if you pay attention to that layer as well and look at the reviews that other people found useful, that, then that also tends to weed out either the fake reviews or or the emotional and, and not very helpful reviews. Yeah, I agree, Steve. The, the reviews that are rated by other reviewers, 
that is another layer that you should go to to just you know because what you're doing like you said is you want to kind of get to the point where you're you're getting the average review and you're not taking the extremes because like as an example I, I was recently looking for reviews I'm always looking for external hard drives so here's my here's my anecdote I noticed that there were an enormous amount of reviews that conflicted each other and then I finally got down to where I I had repeat information come up multiple times that you know the same types of information about the same parts of the, you know the same errors or problems yeah. that they were having with the product and then that's really when you get down to the meat of it. Yeah, I had that experience too. If you look for a pattern, like I did same thing, like shopping for a hard drive. If a lot of people are saying that it failed after a month, that that's probably a concern. Uh, well, let's let's go on to a quick game of Name That Logical Fallacy. This is an uh, occasional segment that we have in the show where we go over something that we've encountered in email or something on the Internet and try to pick out the flaws in the logic of the person who, who is writing. This was an email that I got from a someone who came across uh, my blog who calls herself just Heather. And I, I can't read the entire exchange. It will be in the show notes. Uh, but we, Heather took exception to my stance on science-based medicine, and she writes in part, do we really need science to prove that eating seasonal, local, organic when you, when you can make sense? Do we really need science to prove that what you do has an effect on you? You mean it isn't com- this isn't common sense, intuitive? Reason and logic has its place, but so does intuition. Intuition will save your life. That was sort of the core of her first email. It's like you don't really need science to to right. support our opinions that we can follow our intuition. And well, and intuition has served us so well in the past. I yeah, mean, right. I, I totally understand <laughs> why she she feels that way. Yeah. So she's just asserting a premise here that intuition is reliable. As Steve, reliable let's define intuition. Let's define. Yeah, it. though that's that's part of the problem, and yeah. and and you're going to see that come up. Actually, this this is not the, this is just a setup for the real section that I want to get to. But let's just put that aside. That that's a good question. What is the operative definition? What actually is intuition? So I wrote back to her and just explained, you know, why I endorse science-based medicine, and just also defining what science is. So often my response to people says, oh, we don't need science to tell us what to believe. Um, I say, well, you know, what do you think science is? I wrote, there is nothing magical about science. It is simply a systematic way for carefully and thoroughly observing nature and using consistent logic to evaluate results. So which part of that exactly do you disagree with? Do you disagree with being thorough, using careful observation, being systematic, or using consistent logic? Yeah, that, that third one. Yeah, so Never that's mind. <laughs> well, that's it. I put it to people that way. So they 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 are saying we don't need science. It's like you don't you don't need to be logically consistent. You don't need to be thorough. I mean, what is it about the science that you think we don't need or you don't like or isn't valuable? We don't need uh, no stinking science. So she wrote back. And oh yeah, almost. She 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 completely sidestepped that question actually. But yeah, uh, But this is the part. What 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 logical fallacy do you think she's committing here? She writes, intuition is always accurate. If it's ever wrong, it wasn't intuition. Oh my god! Oh, gosh, so that's special a, pleading. Special right? pleading. And, yeah. Uh, it's um. So is that moving a goalpost? No. It's, no. There's no. a, there's oh, a very really... specific non sequitur. Yeah, <laughs> not sequitur is sort of the generic default. If yeah, it's ever default. wrong, it wasn't intuition. That's oh, that's a uh, uh, um, oh uh, unfalsifiable. No, that is the <laughs> that is the no true Scotsman. True Scotsman. Yes, there it is. 
The No True Scandal. Have you guys ever heard of that one? Thanks, Chad. No, what? I don't <laughs> think yeah. you've spoken I've heard of it, laddie. <laughs> Are you kidding? I hear yeah. this all the time from what did you skeptics, say? actually. Or yeah. from people who say that they're skeptics. They got Usually a turtle head it goes... Out. Um, so what is that? They're called the Drunken Scotsman? What is that one? No True Scotsman. Let me, let me explain to you what this is. This is a way of dismissing of dismissing a contradictory example or an example that essentially disconfirms the claim that you're making using semantics by saying that it doesn't fit the category you were talking about. So, and again, the, the, the term like no true Scotsman comes from saying, like if I claimed all Scotsmen are brave and, and you give me a counterexample, well, here's a Scotsman who's a coward. And I would say, well, he's no true Scotsman then, you know, if he, all true Scotsmen are brave. So you're essentially making your conclusion part of your premise by yeah. defining your category by the, by the characteristic that you're arguing is a part of that, of that category, right? So what she is saying is that intuition, intuition is always accurate. And so if I could give her any counterexample of intuition being wrong, she would just say, well, that wasn't true intuition. So she's making that part of the premise. She's making her conclusion that intuition is always accurate part of the premise by rolling it into the definition of intuition itself. So that gets to your question, Jay, of what's the definition of intuition. She would define it as any guess that turns out to be correct. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, but that, but that's, yeah. but yeah, it's convenient, but it's it, that's ultimately meaningless because you don't know until after the fact that well, a guess is going to turn out to be too late. Corre- to be correct or not. <laughs> right, it's like if, if someone says that psychics <laughs> are very accurate, and we yep. give an example. Look at well, this. Look at this psychic. Yeah. She got all these things wrong. Well, she's no true psychic. Yeah, that's right. basically what what they're doing. Um, again, it's a way of dismissing, disconfirming evidence by playing with semantics. So it's actually a very important thing to. Right, so to how do you, how do you, you you couldn't possibly make any predictions using that logic then? Yeah, you just have to wait and see until the, the results. Well, come it in. does it does become unfalsifiable because yep. again, you you know, as Evan was saying, because it is uh, you automatically rule out any negative results by definition. So it becomes just self retro. It's circular logic. You should just write her back and say, well, that's what my intuition told me, so what can I say? Jay, you get to – I do often will give some version of that response when people are trying to promote intuition to say, well, what if my intuition tells me the exact opposite of what your intuition says? How do you resolve conflicts in the intuition of two different people? And the bottom line is there is no way to resolve it because intuition is magic that you pull out of thin air. It, it, the, the whole thing about science is that it's fair and transparent, and, you, and two people who have different claims can resolve them objectively because there's a process. But with intuition, there's no process. There's nothing. And so there's absolutely no way to resolve differences of opinion that are based on in, intuition. All right, well, let's go on with our interview. We are joined now by Dr. Kevin Folta. Kevin, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, Kevin Folta is an associate professor of horticultural sciences in the department and the graduate program in plant, molecular, and cellular biology at the University of Florida. So you're basically a plant geneticist. Is that right? Um, Yeah, I guess we wear many hats these days if you're in plant biology, from physiology through molecular biology and then genomics. And we're integrated really well with applied programs as well. So we're not just working in the lab, we're taking our findings to the field. 
And it, from from reading your uh, the website about your work, it looks like the applied stuff that you're doing is photomorphogenesis. Is that right? Well, the photomorphogenesis work does tend to be a little bit more to the basic side because we're interested in the molecular events and the biochemical events that are associated with light sensing. And that's a little bit different. We're looking there in seeds to see how how various pathways and various environmental cues change development. The more applied stuff is how we're integrating our findings in novel gene function in describing the translational biology from our models like Arabidopsis, which is like the lab mouse of the plant mm-hmm. world, um, to um, strawberries and other types of crops. So that's how we're finding our applied angle. Are you getting at all into uh, trying to use knowledge of how plants react to and use sunlight and translating that in any way into solar technology? Has that connection been made? Um, Not necessarily. I know some people think about it because certainly photosynthesis does this, but I think the prevailing prevailing opinion is that it's far too inefficient to be able to harness this effectively for generation of energy. It works great in a plant cell where you just have to create a few electrochemical gradients and partition, um, develop some small gradients, but to apply this on a larger scale is a little bit not quite feasible yet. Well, we just have to turn our cars and our houses into, you know, living plants and organisms, and we'll be closer to that goal. Everybody says, wouldn't it be cool if we could just go outside and have uh, chloroplasts in our skin cells and be able to photosynthesize so you didn't have to eat? But that's so much like science fiction. Um, you know, it's so far out there yet, and uh, ideas like that are fun to think about, but still so far from reality. So you brought up the strawberry uh, just now, and uh, I have to mention, so you, you were on the team that sequenced the strawberry genome. Is that correct? Yes, I was um, the, the coordinator of the effort at, towards the end of the effort, along with uh, 75 other scientists from, I think, 30 different laboratories uh, worldwide. It was an excellent team, fun to uh, work with a series of experts to answer a really cool question. And we're interested in the strawberry because of its tiny genome and the fact that we could sequence it the entire thing using next-generation technology um, or the new, new breed of sequencing. And what's the ultimate application of sequencing the strawberry genome? Well, the nice thing about having the sequence of a strawberry genome is that now we have a complete parts list. We know all of the different uh, genes that are available and which ones are similar to what's already been described in other systems. So we have an idea now of what's in there. Now our trick is is to start defining how those genes function and how we can put them together, how put them together either by traditional breeding or maybe by GE technology to be able to improve crops. And so it starts out just by knowing what's in there. Once we know, now the biology, now the hard part begins. Now, my older daughter's favorite food in the world happens to be strawberries. And I asked her if she had any questions for you, and she wants to know if you identified the genes that make strawberries taste so good. Oh, this is really, really a great question, because the problem is if you look at wild strawberries, they taste wonderful. And somewhere between the wild strawberry and the cultivated strawberry, many of those compounds have been lost. And it's mostly because breeders, the people who actually do the hard work of selecting the elite germplasm or elite plants from large arrays of cross populations, they identify plants that have good resistance to disease. They find plants that produce a lot of berries that ship well and uh, stay good in the store and in your refrigerator. The last thing they check for is flavor, or at least one of the minor considerations. So most of the cultivars or most of the varieties that are currently in production 
anywhere in the world, don't have the flavor that some of the wild ones do. So we're identifying what those compounds are, uh, if consumers like those compounds, and then trying to breed those back into traditional or into our current line of cultivated strawberries using traditional breeding. And that's a, that's a huge effort here at the University of Florida and a number of laboratories all over the world. Um, you, you mentioned the consumer response to strawberries and how that's sort of a driving influence in, in that research. Is your research sponsored by any kind of GM corporation like Monsanto or something like that? No, that's a really good question, and it always comes up. We've never received a dime from Monsanto or any big ag company. Um, even strawberry companies that could benefit from our technology don't sponsor our research, and I think it's because we do a lot of GE research, and they um, are very concerned about the misinterpretation of them uh, placing funds in a laboratory that does that work. That's uh, interesting. So not only you – know, you might think that some researchers don't want to take money from certain corporations because they don't want it, their research to be tainted, but you're also telling us that corporations wouldn't want to fund your research because they don't want their reputation to be tainted. Is that, is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. In, in fact, one of the largest companies that uh, breeds strawberries – um, was reluctant to fund not only our research work, our day-to-day -day research, but even supplying money for the genome because sequencing a genome would be equated with frankenfoods in the minds of many people where, they come, where their company is located. And so they were very reluctant to even uh, assist us with that, uh, even though they were going to greatly benefit from the technology and the development of molecular markers to assist the breeding program. So this brings us to... The, the primary reason for the interview, and that's to, to get your opinion on genetically modified food. This is a hugely controversial topic, more so, I think, in, in Europe than in the United States. But pretty much everywhere, you brought up the term frankenfood. That's basically uh, the, the term that genetically modified food has been, been marked with. So why don't you just give us an introduction. What do you, what's your overall summary of the state of genetic engineering with, with respect to food? Well, I think it's, it's particularly paradoxical that we can take two plants that are almost not related and we can cross them together to generate a next generation, which then can be marketed in organic markets. It can be certified as organic, no problem. We can mix 40,000 genes with 40,000 genes from these two different species maybe, and that's perfectly acceptable. We have no idea what genes are mixing. We have no idea how to trace their products. We have no idea what allergens may be produced, what other toxic compounds may be produced. But still, this is fine. But you're talking about there, you're talking about just, just breeding. Standard traditional breeding, wide crosses. Yeah. The whole idea is to, in breeding is to incorporate new variation, and new variation that the consumer may find acceptable or, or preferred. And so many breeders go out in the wild and find plants that could never cross with uh, cultivated materials naturally. That's the idea, bringing something really unique. Um, other laboratories, and this is another major thing that's been done throughout the last century, was um, mutation breeding, where you could treat seeds or plants with chemicals, you could treat them with radiation, and generate variation that way, just by damaging genes or causing major chromosome rearrangements, sometimes whole genome duplications. And that's perfectly acceptable. But if you want to improve a plant by introducing one gene, and by doing it in a way that you can trace how that gene is going to behave in the plant, you can trace its products, you understand what it does, you understand uh, how this protein that's eventually produced is interacting with other parts of the plant's biology, that's unacceptable. 
And so it's that paradox that if we, we want to just surgery, if we want to use a sledgehammer, it's perfectly allowed. But if we want to use a scalpel, it's not allowed. What would you say to those who argue that uh, with genetic modification, we can take a gene from, say, a bacterium, something that could never be uh, bred with a plant, and, and insert it into, into a plant? And therefore, you know, we're going farther afield evolutionarily, and that produces less predictable results. What would you say to that? Well, it, it does happen naturally. There are examples of horizontal gene transfer, certainly, that um, agrobacterium is a type of soil bacterium that does this very well. Um, it moves across species borders all the time. So this isn't something new and isn't something unusual. Uh, the objections come from people who, uh, who don't like the technology doing it. It seems if it's naturally transferred, there's no problem. There. What about people who have issues with um, the idea of Corporations, like for instance, uh, just I believe in 2009, it was uh, made public that companies like Monsanto and and um, and other companies, uh, other GM companies, were requiring anyone who purchased their seeds to sign um, a thing that said that they would promise not to perform any tests, uh, any independent studies comparing them to other seeds. Um, do you think that there's a a legitimate concern there with these companies controlling the research that's being done on their products? Well, they do control the research to some degree, that you're not allowed. Now, the, the agreements you speak of are specifically with farmers, and that farmers agree to, when they purchase a product, to use it in the manner in which it's intended. We do this with software. We do this with patented food items. We do this with every recipes, any of the trade secrets. And there it seems to be okay. But for some reason, when we do it with uh, agronomic products, it seems to be unacceptable. The fact of the matter is that independent tests happen all the time. Um, the EU just concluded a major set of tests over the last decade. And this was European laboratories. It was over 50 laboratories that ascertained the safety of GM crops, both in environmental issues as well as personal health issues, and found no evidence of harm. So a lot of the uh, rhetoric that surrounds um, the requirement to not perform studies on these seeds is really just uh, swirling around what is an IP protection for these companies. They just don't want to share their technology with other companies. Well, I, I just want to make clear that I completely agree with you that, you know, as far as we understand at this point, that these products are completely safe. They're, they're safe for our health. Um, I think that the concerns being brought up, and um, particularly I'm referring to Scientific American, um, published an editorial in 2009 coming out against um, this sort of concern because it, it was um, there's a line, of course, where we want to protect companies' patents. We want to protect their, their ability to, to come up with these things. But on the other hand, we do want to encourage an open and honest testing environment and what wasn't being tested properly according to Scientific American was whether or not these seeds were actually as effective as they were being claimed. Um, Scientific American presented some evidence to the contrary to suggest that the performance of the seeds was actually nowhere near to being what the GM companies were were claiming. I think that it may depend on what Scientific American is looking at. I know there's been a number of issues, especially that, that anti-GE folks will bring up, that especially talking about the Union of Concerned Scientists study a few years ago that says GM crops are no more productive than, than traditionally bred crops. 
And they're right. In many cases, they're not. And you can find good examples where GM corn gives you the same output as conventionally raised or even um, or conventionally raised. Right. The difference is in the number of inputs. And this is where, where it's all about looking at how much you're putting in versus how much you're getting out. Farmers switch to GE because it works. 90% of the corn acreage, 90% of the cotton, the soybean acreage is uh, GE. And it's because it works. And it gives substantial yields with less inputs. And that's the other side of the coin that they frequently leave out of those discussions. Do you think that there is a concern with companies creating things like terminator seeds that automatically die at the end of a season um, and thereby forcing farmers to become dependent upon multinational corporations to produce the world's food supplies? Well, that's a really good point. Um, But companies, Big Ag has been doing this for 100 years. Um, When you produce elite hybrids, the first generation that you plant is a combination of two elite germ, uh, two elite germ lines that have been crossed together, producing this individual that has all kinds of uh, traits from both of those parents. Now, when the, that one selfs and produces the next generation of seeds, it's not necessarily going to be exactly like the parent it came from. You'll see traits segregating or mixing genetically in the next generation, and the the next the generation that comes from the uh, hybrid, the original hybrid, has nowhere near the production as the original hybrid plant that was purchased from the seed company. So in this way, seed companies have been able to uh, control the spread of their genetics and have been able to provide farmers with something that works well for one season, and that's it. So the idea of using this kind of technology is nothing new to um, the ag industry. Yeah, it sounds like there's two basic uh, categories of issues here. One is just the scientific issue of safety and effectiveness. And I, I agree with you that it sounds like most objections to GM food is essentially the naturalistic fallacy. It doesn't happen in nature, therefore we're afraid of it, there's something wrong with it. But you make a very good point that you know, this is no different. In fact, it's, it's more precise and more controlled than what's been happening for literally thousands of years in terms of crossbreeding and cultivating and hybriding, etc. The other issue is ownership and the behavior of big agro. You know, it's always good to blame a big, you know, corporation. Uh, it's sort of some appeal there. Uh, I think we're, the public is sort of prepared to buy into the notion that any big corporation is necessarily nefarious and, and looking to deceive the public and uh, et cetera. And, you know, the, the, it's funny that the, the, the um, Monsanto is, uh, is almost a bad word now. You know, it's, I mean, that company has terrible... PR at this point. Well, I mean, they did create Agent Orange. It doesn't get much worse in terms of PR. Yeah. I, I, I think but that I think, you know most people connect it with GM food, not necessarily Agent Orange. It's more there. You know, I hear lots of people talking about the fact that like they, they sued a farmer because seed blew into his field. I mean, that that kind of behavior, I think, is what is really getting the public well, riled up. I think my point, though, is just that you know, I, I feel that when we talk about big pharma, it, it it's quite a bit like. Um, like this, where you have these corporations, everything they do is not necessarily suspect. It's not necessarily wrong. Vaccines are good, for instance, and and, um, safe. But that doesn't mean that these aren't corporations that do some seriously shady stuff. And, you know, I, I think 
Monsanto has done some seriously shady stuff in their past and that they probably shouldn't be uh, trusted with our food supply. You know, and it's not to say that GM isn't perfectly safe um, and effective, but I, I think we do need to be critical when they are doing shady things, you know? Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree. Just, just like with the pharmaceutical industry, I think they need to be any, – any vital industry like that, especially where human health is on the line, needs to be carefully regulated. And I think that's – maybe the, the, the regulations and the, and the laws haven't caught up yet with the widespread introduction of, of GM crops. What, what do you think about that, Kevin? Well, I actually, I kind of think it's exactly the opposite. I think there's so much regulatory um, network that needs to be uh, navigated in order to commercialize a crop that only the big farm, big farm companies, big ag companies can play. When the legislation is proposed to be changed, I can't give any good hard evidence of this. So uh, this is what just from people I speak to in my field and people I work with who will say that when there's going to be a policy change that Monsanto, the Dow Agros, big companies will actually push to keep the rules more stringent and make it more expensive and more difficult. And that's why you don't see universities uh, commercializing crops, uh, GE crops. That's why you don't see the USDA and ARS, the Agricultural Research Service, um, producing lots of GE crops. Uh, we have them, and they're, they're in our laboratories, so they could have benefit potentially. Right now we use them for research because we can answer biological questions and see what makes plants tick. But the stifling um, cost to do it and the timelines to do it only benefit the big corporations. So one way to stop the big corporations would be to loosen the restrictions. And big ag is not about to do that. They want to keep it as hard as it, hard as it can be to uh, commercialize GE crops. Because it keeps out competitors. It keeps out competitors. So how do we go about loosening those restrictions while still making sure that we're keeping an eye on businesses, uh, making sure that they're not doing underhanded tactics? Yeah, that's a good question. And it really, it really takes me a little bit out of my area of expertise, which is the science behind this and, and evaluation of safety and all this stuff. But what it's going to require is a whole revamping of the system, thinking about safety, thinking about environment, environmental and human safety first, and then uh, making it easier to bring products to those trials and lowering the cost of getting those products through those trials. In reality, what's going to happen, and this was predicted by someone else, not me, that all of this will change upon catastrophe. When we have a viral outbreak, when we have some sort of problem that really requires uh, technology to save an industry, then you'll find it becomes acceptable. That's exactly what happened with the papaya industry in, in Hawaii, that uh, they were going to lose all the papayas to papaya ring spot virus. And a USDA scientist came up with a solution, and it's been implemented. It was um, given away um, under a, a very loose license so that any farmer could grow it. And it remains to this day a really productive way of generating papayas in Hawaii. This all brings up a, a, another issue, and that is the notion of uh, genetic diversity among 
cultivated crops. And another uh, concern, and this is, again, this is not specific to genetically modified plants, but just the, the big agro itself uh, encourages the use of these optimal, marketable, profitable cultivars. So everyone uses the best variety, and it, this pushes out the local varieties, and that leaves us with a crop that is very vulnerable to blight and infection. So do you see this as an enduring problem? And if so, what's the solution? Well, you're right. It does. Anytime you, uh, you don't have to look much farther than the Irish potato phantom and see what happens when you uh, monoculture something. Uh, it leaves it open to, to a problem that can uh, permeate the entire population. However, the, the current um, state of things is not essentially just one single, one single germplasm. I think there's a, a rather significant amount of diversity inside uh, the seeds that can be planted that bear GE traits. And uh, many of these have been uh, uh, selected to work in different environments, um, work better in some places, some geographical regions than others. And so it's not, uh, I don't think it's nearly as bad as, as we think in terms of the diversity of crops that are out there. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for talking with us. We really uh, appreciate the time. Uh, thank you very much. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to sniff out the fake. Is everyone ready for this week? Yep. Roger. Ready to sniff. All righty. Yep. Item number one. Biologists have discovered the existence of a new animal phylum, bringing the total to 36. Item number two, a recent review of the research in sub-Saharan women indicates that intravaginal lavage with soap is associated with a significant reduction in risk of HIV contraction. And item number three, according to new research, the number of adult Americans who demonstrate a basic level of scientific literacy has increased over the last 20 years from 10 to 28%. Steve, did you say lavage? Yes, I did. Lavage. It's a fancy scientific word for washing. Uh, so, Jay, why don't you go first? Is that like Jordy Lavage? <laughs> uh, okay, Lavage. so bi- biologists have discovered the existence of a new animal phylum, bringing the total to 36. <laughs> Finding a new animal phylum. Bob's going to be upset over that, I can tell. Women washing up, I'm going to assume they mean here like after sex, Steve? Or? It is what it is. Okay, all right. So being clean can help you not contract HIV. When you, when you contract HIV, skin to skin won't do it. There has to be some type of bodily fluid that gets passed. And, and you know, I could see that, that that washing could help, but at the same time, I haven't really heard that. And I think we would know that by now. All right, uh, the, the last one about the literacy increasing over the last 20 years from 10% to 28%. I would very much like to believe that. But sadly, I don't think that that's true. I will say that the, the last one, literacy one, is, is incorrect. Okay, Bob. A new animal phylum. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. I'm kind of bummed. I, I didn't, wasn't even aware of that if it's true. I thought there'd be more than 36, but... Five. Let's see. Uh, the second one, I've got a problem with that one, um, with the lavage. I just didn't think that would make a difference. And I would think that um, if you cleaned yourself well, that it, would, it might actually increase the risk a little bit. Cause, you know, a little... You know, considering you, you might introduce little tiny, very you know, very small nicks or cuts um, to yourself, uh, and and it says here a significant reduction. 
Yeah, that one I might have a big – I think I've got a big problem with that one. And then the third one, basic level of scientific literacy from 10 to 28. It's a huge increase. Um, was it as low as 10%? I mean 28% is fairly pathetic as it is. So it's still pathetic. Um, it's just less pathetic than it might have been 20 years ago. 10%, I mean it seems pretty low. But good – I mean a good cleaning – Redu- significant reduction risk of HIV. Uh, I'm going to say that one is fiction. Okay, Evan. The new animal phylum is really cool, uh, bringing the total to 36. I think that one is science. Uh, I didn't read it, obviously, but uh, I think yeah, that's... Yeah, because you don't read. <laughs> <laughs> He's illiterate. Biologistus. <laughs> <laughs> No, I thought uh, that's very cool. Bob, I was thinking along the same lines as you in regards to the sub-Saharan women. That process might uh, have perhaps the opposite effect, uh, potentially, like you said, nicks and cuts and these sorts of things. Wouldn't that be uh, a way of increasing that risk? Um, The last one, the only thing I can... Uh, Steve, about uh, scientific literacy increasing over the last 20 years from 10 to 28%. The last 20 years, the thing that correlates with that uh, is the emergence of the Internet. Has that had that effect, that much of an effect, 10% to 28%? And is that the main reason uh, for adults, adult Americans, increasing their basic level of scientific literacy? I'll say yes, that it is, and I'll say that one's science. Therefore, I'll agree with Bob, uh, risk of HIV contraction fiction. Okay, Rebecca. Yeah, I uh, I agree with Bob in that um, I thought that there would be more phyla than thirty six, but I can believe that there has been a new one. So okay, and also I do believe that our scientific literacy could have uh, grown that much from ten to twenty eight percent. Evan makes a good point about the interwebs. Um, I disagree with the idea that washing um, intravaginally could introduce nicks and cuts. I don't, I don't think that's too great of a concern. For me, the bigger concern would be, you know, what we know about douching, killing off bacteria, important bacteria. So anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying that I too think that that one is the fiction. So it's Jay against everyone else, but you all agree in number one. Biologists have discovered the existence of a new animal phylum, bringing the total to 36. And that one is, is, it is science. Yay. Yay. Yeah, this is cool. You don't get a new phylum every day. Mm. Apparently not. It's only 36 of them. Yeah, the, 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 the phyla is basically one of the most fundamental categories of living things. It if you start with all of life and then beneath that is domain, beneath domains are kingdoms. Kings are like plants, animals. And then beneath kingdom is phylum. So oh, yeah. under animals, phylum is the next, the next division. And you could think about it as basic body plan. So there are now a total of 36 animal phyla. Uh, basically, it's things like the chordata, which are mm. chordates. Spines. The spines. Yeah, things, things that have a... a, a Spinal cord. Spinal cord. Uh, there are um, you know, mollusks, the echinoderms, which are the radial symmetrical things like mm. uh, sea stars, stars. And, uh, and stuff like that. 
and then but most of the other ones are basically different types of worms. <laughs> you know, a lot of the animal phyla are this kind of worm or that kind of worm. Flat worms and round worms and this worm. Round worms. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently we have a fan in the house. I like square worms. Oh, they're amazing. Look them up. They're great. They're all over the place. I pass. Up until now, there were only three animal phyla that were deuterostomes, one of which being the chordata. So basically the chordata, the hemichordata, and the echinoderms were the three phyla of deuterostomes. Now, the uh, animals are divided into, basically, into protostomes, which are animals that um, their basic body plan is such that when the, the, the first, basically, hole that develops or fold that develops when in the developmental process becomes the mouth. Whereas in the in the so that means first mouth it, the deuterostomes uh, that first hole actually becomes the anus and the mouth forms later at the opposite end right it's quite a it's, distinction yeah okay so again we're talking about basic body plans the basic ways in which the body plans unfold during the development process there were uh, creatures that that biologists thought were sort of transitional between the protostomes and the deuterostomes. But it turns out, upon closer examination, that they're actually deuterostomes, that they have you know, there are certain genetic links and, and anatomical links between them. So the, the new phylum is the Xenocelomorpha, and it's the combination of the Xenoturbella and the acelomorph worms. So two different types of worms are now combined into the, the uh, Xenocelomorpha phylum. Uh, which is a the fourth phylum of deuterostomes. So it actually puts them closer to humans than they than they previously were thought to be. So let's go on to number two. A recent review of research in sub-Saharan women indicates that intravaginal lavage with soap is associated with a significant reduction in risk of HIV contraction. Give Gay it to me, baby. Thinks that this one <laughs> is true. The rest of you thinks think this one is the fiction, and this one is. Fiction. Yeah, baby. Sorry, Jay. Sorry. Yeah, you guys pretty, pretty much nailed it. In fact, the review of research shows that washing with soap increased the risk of, of HIV contraction. Huh? And also other, other behaviors. Why? There were other behaviors that were linked to vaginal hygiene or intravaginal practices, as they were called in the study, that were associated with an increase in the risk of contracting HIV in these women. Using soap is a no-no, uh, because it, it, uh, probably because it irritates the mucosa. Uh, also, cleaning out with paper or you know, basically you know, scrubbing the, the vaginal wall is an, also a no-no. Ugh, good. But just using water apparently is fine. The idea is to avoid any kind of... You know, like physical scrubbing or any kind of chemical that that could irritate the uh, the mucosa. And Rebecca, you are right. This probably is, has mainly to do with decreasing the normal flora that colonizes the mucosa and provides somewhat of a barrier to infection. So washing actually can can make you catch HIV faster. Yes, or give you a higher risk of HIV. Right. Unbelievable. Washing the wrong way. This means that, according to new research, the number of adult Americans who demonstrate a basic level of scientific literacy has increased over the last 20 years from 10% to 28% is very nice and encouraging science. Somewhat. Well, at least it's going in the right direction. I agree with you, Bob. 28% is still pathetic. This is the research of one John Miller 
who has been doing the same exact survey over the last 20 years. So it's the, it's the same survey, which is, which is good because you That's can compare good, yeah. apples yeah. to apples. Uh, and he, um, the threshold that is using is what he calls uh, like a civic scientific literacy. In other words, if you're mm. going to be uh, a citizen and be able to vote on topics that have to do with science, like he specifically mentions global climate change, embryonic stem cells, future energy sources, a possible viral pandemic. These are all issues that are science-based that are yet we are dealing with as a democracy on a political level. And so you need a certain sort of civic level of scientific literacy. And that's where he drew the threshold. And in 1988, when he started doing this survey, only 10% of American adults were at that level or above. And now that number is up to 28%. Hmm. Although he says the other 72% basically have no clue, is what he said. No clue. Uh-huh. I'd, like to, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see what he came up with. See the results, yeah. Yeah. See, no, see the questions. Actually, see, take it and see what he what the questions. Yeah, I'd like are. to take the full the full thing uh, myself. But you know, he, d- he does give some examples of questions. So, you know, like I found articles about him going back, you know, two thousand and five, for example. So, uh, uh, actually, Evan, you had sent me an article that was this one is a survey of Russians and uh, their uh, their knowledge of science, and it, it, it noted that this is recent. Noted that 32% of Russians dismiss the idea that the sun is at the center of the solar system. They basically say that the sun goes around the Earth. What do you think the percentage is among Americans? Boy, I hope it's uh, lower. 40? <laughs> 20%, right. 20%. 20%? 20%? It's lower, so it's lower than still. the 32% figure for Russians, but still, that's one in five Americans think the sun one goes around five. the Earth. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a fail. As far yeah. as I'm concerned, how do you go through life and not know that? Yeah, I, I, you know, how could you be so indifferent to something so fundamental? So some of the questions um, were like accepting the concept of biological evolution. Thirty-seven uh, percent of American adults accepted evolution. Jeez. Of course, we know that that's you know again a very political issue, not necessarily a scientific literacy issue. Forty-four percent of American adults can define DNA correctly. Only 20% can define the meaning of a stem cell, which is interesting. That's been, so, that's been in the news wow, you know, for yeah. so much over the last 10 years, really. Stem cells have been in the news, but yet only one in five Americans can actually tell you what a stem cell is. Only 27% of Americans think that more than half of human genes are identical to those of mice. So again, it's kind of an evolution-type question. But, but again, it does also raise the question of, well, why has it been going up? You know, we've certainly have been very critical of the state of science education in this country. And, you know, maybe it is the Internet. Who knows? I'd like to credit directly not only the skeptical movement, but the skeptic's guide to the universe for this increase. (laughs) (laughs) If we'd been around for 20 years, we might have something to say. Well, we've been around for six years. We're coming up on six years. Yeah, it's it's a good chunk. Long enough to affect that data. Absolutely. It's a good chunk. The Internet was just barely chugging along in the early 90s with 14.4 K uploads. And- <laughs> right, right. <laughs> My first modem was 2800 baud. Oh, Ouch. Wow. And I thought that was yeah. that was screaming. <laughs> I had a 14.4. Yeah, yeah Steve, sure. you didn't have one until 28s came out? Oh, yeah, where were you? Yeah, 2800. 2800. Oh. 2800, 28,000. Uh, yeah, I thought the same thing, Jay. Like, that's- no. oh, yeah, it was, you know, that was, that was harsh. That was really Actually, sp- I don't know what the one we had on our Commodore 64 was, but I remember Whoa. talking to the kid down the street. 
Commodore 64 on nice. it. Mm-hmm. God, you guys remember waiting for an image to load and it would yeah. just do that slow line by line. One, oh. yeah. uh, one image. It made porn so much more exciting. What's it going to be? What's yeah. she wearing? <laughs> What's she wearing? Oh, she's got tentacles. Damn it. Yeah, there was there was no, there was, there was no streaming Dexter back in those days. Nope. No. That was not is, is that what you call it? Streaming Dexter? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of weird, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just I recently watched every last episode of the show Dexter, right. which rocks. Not, not Steve. judging you, Bob. Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? Yes. This was a quote sent in by a man named Duff Dyer. And I had to uh, pick this quote because of his name because I thought it was cool. Tough Dyer. Dyer. I'm going to dedicate this quote to Rebecca Watson Mm. because she's going to be incredibly impressed with how I pronounce this next person's name. This is a quote (laughs) from Ayn Rand. Good. (laughs) Very good. Thank you. Yeah, well done. Reason is not automatic. Those who deny it cannot be conquered by it. Do not count on them. Leave them alone. Ayn Rand! Good job, Jay. Author of The Fountainhead. Author of Atlas Shrugged. We do have an announcement. Do you guys remember about the SGU Uncut? Yes. Yes. It's been a while, but we do produce some essentially uncut episodes of the SGU. These usually are longer interviews uh, that are either were completely unused or only a small piece were used in the regular show. Uh, I put together the uncut number six, and this is an interview, a very long interview. It's about 50 minutes with Adam Savage combined with uh, about a 40-minute interview with uh, Jennifer Michael Hecht. Two very excellent interviews. And you can you can purchase these uncut episodes from the SGU store. So if you go to the Skeptics Guide to the Universe homepage and then click on the store uh, tab, you will see six episodes there. It's actually uh, the first five are bundled, so you could buy all of the one through five together, uh, and then there'll also be now the an additional sixth episode there as well. Um, this is a a way that you can support the SGU. Uh, this is uh, you know what we consider to be premium content. We do not charge for the the podcast itself, and and we will not charge for it. That is our pledge. But we do produce this extra content, and we do ask that you consider uh, downloading our extra content content because that is a way of getting something in return for providing a little bit of financial support for the production of The Skeptic's Guide. So take a look at it. Hey, everybody. Come to Nexus. What is Nexus? Nexus, Yeah, what's that? Wow, I'm glad you asked. Nexus is the Northeast Conference on Science and something or other. Cool. And it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Uh, when, Nexus when is, is it? Uh, April, it April something. April 9th to 10th? <laughs> that sounds about right. Yes. So, um, so it's a two-day event this year and not just a one-day? That's correct, Jay. And also makes Julian fries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I- Rebecca, what's the website people can go to for more information? Nexuscon.org, N-E-C-S-S-C-O-N.org. There's going to be a live taping of The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, as well as That's many it. other great speakers. Phil Plate will be the keynote. Uh, George Robb will be performing. Robb. Todd and Robbins will be emceeing, and Todd Robbins is awesome. Rebecca will be oh, there. I love Todd. No, volca- no volcanoes this year to interrupt that. No, no volcano will stop me this year, I promise. So check it out. Uh, and thanks for joining me again this week, everyone. Hey, thank thanks, you, Steve. Thank you. 
And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcast, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zune, or your portal of choice. Theorem is performed by Kineto and used with permission. <laughs>